Cape Talk, Inspiration Wednesdays. I have been so looking forward to this segment. I can't tell you. I've actually been reading Brett's book while I was away on holiday. And it's one of those days where I get to say welcome to a guest that we are so grateful is here in the flesh in studio because there was a time a couple of years ago when we thought nobody would ever say welcome to him anywhere ever again, Brett Archibald. Uh, I'm sure you will recall that name when I tell you that Brett is the South African surfer who fell overboard in Indonesia in 2013 and was lost to the sea for more than 28 hours. Now, he lived to tell the tale. He has recently published a book about his ordeal called Alone, The Search for Brett Archibald. We're so glad to have you with us, Brett. Welcome to Cape Talk. Thank you for having me, Pippa. I'm so stoked to be here. It's been trying to get on the show with Jonathan for only two months, but I'm glad the timing's worked we out. We finally got it right. I was here, you were here, all together in studio. And I, I mean, I say I remember it like it was yesterday, but those two days, uh, two to three days really, had this whole city gripped. I remember the calls into the station first saying, there's a South African bloke over there in Indonesia and he's gone missing. That was the first story. There was the absolute incredulity 30 hours later when we heard that you had been found and found alive. A lot of people had already given up hope. We know your wife, your family, your friends were, were here in Cape Town mobilizing, trying to get people to help in the search for you. Just an unbelievable story. And um, the book is an absolutely riveting read because it takes you through not only what Brett was going through in the water and what was going through his head, but also what the friends on board the boat he had fallen off were going through, the people who were looking for him, and of course, the anguish that his family was facing back home in Cape Town. Let's go back, Brett, to April 2013. You were in Indonesia, the Mentawai Islands, what was meant to be a buddy trip. All of you celebrating a 50th birthday. Tell us what took you there, a rather remote part of Indonesia. It is very remote, but it's one of the best surf breaks in the world. And it started actually 14 years ago now in total, where we're just really good mates. And that's the story is about good mates that hadn't seen each other. We lived all over the world. We started going, went across for our 40th birthday, and most of the guys had been going every two years. So this was now our fifth trip, two years down the line. And yeah, it was just to go and celebrate life. The reason we go there, it's because you feel like Robinson Crusoe. All <laughs> men still have a little boy, bit of boy in them and you feel like Robinson Crusoe. No cell phone signal, no laptops, just surf, catch up with mates, drink a few beers and have a great time. Now this particular trip had started a little bit wobbly. The weather hadn't been great. You had had a bit of a dodgy meal on the way over. The start hadn't gone exactly smoothly. Um, what was the mood like on board uh, the, the night? I mean, you fell overboard at about 2 o'clock in the morning. The night before, talk us through what you'd been doing and what the mood was like. We arrived, all of us travelled an incredibly long journey. I, I'd flown for or travelled for just over 54 hours with little sleep. We all met up in Jakarta, caught a connection down to Padang, jumped on our, well, should have jumped on our boat. We arrived early to actually get on our boat and set sail being the tropics we know the storms come in the evening so we'd wanted to head out inadvertent error by our skipper had taken the boat up the river parked it there we were now tide dependent and we were mm. told that we could only sail at 9 p.m that night so there were nine very grumpy 50 year olds <laughs> <laughs> we jumped on board eventually at about five o'clock you, you need to understand it was quite a somber mood one of our very good friends from we'd gone through school with him had passed away on the friday we flew on the sunday so none of us could be at his funeral on the wednesday and the 10th crew member of ours a friend living in dubai had been diagnosed with stage four melanoma in his back and had to have it cut out urgently so he had pulled out of the trip so there was a bit of melancholy there was a bit of sadness on a lot of our behalf but it was still jocular it was fun we were catching up with guys we hadn't seen the 
first question I'm asked by 90% of men, because men are a lot more blunt than women, is how drunk was I when I <laughs> fell overboard? I bet you had that in your armor for a little bit later. And you know what? Part of me wants to say, oh, out of my skull. That's how clever I am. Not only had I not slept for 54 hours, traveled, tired, exhausted, but also I was drunk. I, we'd had a few beers. We had some beers at lunchtime. The main culprit for me was a very dodgy pizza. Mm. I always say, when in, in when in, in Italy, eat pizza and pasta. When in Indonesia, eat nasi goreng and noodles. <laughs> which I, I ate this pizza, and I just remember it being rancid. It was a calzone. It was folded open as we cut it open. They were massive pizzas, three, three guys to a pizza. And I remember my friend cutting this open, wolfing it down. The mince stank. It was oh. pitch black. And I said to him, but we were so hungry, you know. So he washed it down with a beer or two, and then the guys kind of dispersed and did their own thing. And then we set sail at just before nine, and literally went into a hectic storm. We should have turned around. We didn't. Plowed on. I got violently ill. Was on top deck helping a mate. Vomited over the side once, twice. And interestingly, my last conscious thought was, if I vomit like that again, I'm going to black out. I, my subconscious, not 20 centimeters away from me, one of the pictures in the book was a life ring. And I remember thinking, Brett, just put your arm through that and twist it round. Mm. And I didn't. And next minute I woke up with my boat 50-odd meters away, sailing into the storm and me screaming for my life. So you actually have no recollection of, of falling over itself. Nothing. The first thing you remember is being in the water, first thing watching actually, the boat sail away. So interesting. When I was rescued and I was surfing the following day, an American doctor paddled up to me and he said, you wondering what happened to you? And I said, how did you know that? He said, because you were standing on the side, you were being ill, and next minute you were in the water and you don't know how that happened. And I can honestly say I've, I, I, I've been on boats and the sea my whole life. If someone had bet me my family, my life, my bank account, my house, I would have betted that I would never fall off a boat. Hmm. And here I was. I'd, so I have no recollection. My last thought being, if you vomit like that, again, you pass out. Amazing dream. Terrible dream, actually. But they worked out afterwards. I'd gone under the boat. and I was being tossed between the propellers. So all these white bubbles. I was in a dream where I thought I was in a washing machine sure. as a kid. And I was being tumbled around. I thought, what a cool game. Why don't we play this as kids? Don't try it, kids. Throw a bit of Omo in a washing machine, throw your mate in and tumble around and wave at your friends. And then my dream morphed into my mates flicking water on my face and saying, Arch, wake up. At the surf spot, we're going surfing. I said, don't wet my bed. And I was wiping the water out of my face and I opened my eyes and there I was in the middle of the ocean. And you were wiping real water out of your real eyes. Real water. Sea, water. horrible, smashing waves. In the middle of a storm. Now, you had some things working in your favor, it has to be said. The water was very warm. Correct. Uh, you were in good physical condition besides the seasickness and the food poisoning. You'd recently done a big cycling race. Correct. You were very fit yourself. Uh, the sea was very rough. The storm was co was contending, but that did mean that you didn't have sun to contend with yes. on the first day. And very all of those fortunate. things played a big role in your being able to survive this. Sure. I, I, the first 12 hours, I was so lucky in in so many sense as you said the water was warm i i we had four massive tropical down storm downpours and interestingly i'd fallen over with a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and the rain was so sore on my bald head that big drops that i took my t-shirt off and tied it like a bandana around my head also stupidly a avid um a MacGyver fan in my mind the rainwater was going to go into the cotton I could suck the cotton I'd be drinking fresh water <laughs> ways were crashing it was just complete lunacy but that played out that was cool the reality was if it had been like the next day I was found at 7.15am on the second day 
that was the hottest day. I mean, my face was like beetroot just from sun, being in the sun from five to seven. It gets up to 40 degrees. So mm. if it had been one of those days, I would never have lost it. You wouldn't it. have lost so it, yeah. the storm, the rain, the waves, they played a huge role in me surviving, but also they played a huge role in my boat came back after 12 hours. 12 hours they were right there and they couldn't see me because of the storm. That That's, was the worst thing. That is one of the most heart thing, heartbreaking things to read in the book is what's going through your mind when 12 hours in, it's already a long, very difficult ordeal. You see that boat coming back. You think this is it. They found me. They've come back for me and I'm going home. And then they sail away. And for the second time, yeah. you have to watch that boat leave. That would, for many people, I think, have been the breaking point. Brett, what was it that, that made you go, okay, big blow, but you're not giving up? No, I, I mean, I did. I gave up. I, I'm, I gave up eight times in this entire ordeal. Interestingly, I didn't give up. I gave up right in the beginning because I knew I was lost. 100 kilometers in the middle of a 200-kilometer crossing. But instantaneously, milliseconds, my brain started fighting, putting processes in place, started singing, counting, all those kind of things. But when my boat came back, I knew without a shadow of a doubt my mates would come. I mean, mm. we'd been friends from grade one. It just not even a question. I started calculating worst case, best case scenario and worst case scenario. I parked and banked best case scenario. I didn't want to think anything good. Worst case scenario, 14 hours. And lo and behold, 12 hours to the hour. 2.30 in the afternoon, here they come. They stop 50 meters, 60 meters. I don't know, it's difficult to tell in the sea. I can see them perfectly. I think, what a clever skipper. He's stopping 65-foot boat far away. They're going to put the tender in the water, come and get me. And I'm going to be drinking bintang and surfing with my mates and <laughs> We're going to talk about this forever. And next minute, two black puffs of smoke and off they go. out the exhaust and they sail away. And I, I, you don't, I can't even share. There are no words, expletives that I can share with you. I let rip. I looked skywards and I let rip with the most profane language in the history of the world. <laughs> Brett, I know, I mean, and you describe in the book, uh, it was 28 and a half hours that you were in the sea, and we're going to talk about the night in just a moment. But you do mention several hallucinations that you had, particularly towards the end. Did you ever consider that maybe that sighting of your boat was a hallucination, or did you know for sure that it was there? No, I knew for sure, and and it was so interesting afterwards because I had all following that I had so many hallucinations. When I was rescued, I was questioning. Mm. And it was so incredible that when I finally got onto my boat and we were sitting, because we spent a good two hours just bonding around the dining room table with the map out, and they showed me the route they'd followed and where they had stopped. And they had seen a piece of submerged polystyrene, waterlogged. Oh. They were convinced, some of them were convinced, certainly the skipper was convinced that I'd passed away, I was drowned, and body, naturally your body sinks to the bottom, and comes up once up. the gas is full up, and they thought I was floating. It was just my bald head, this white. Sure. Thing. And that's what they were looking at. So they weren't even looking on the side of the boat. The two guys were, but the rain was coming straight into their faces. So their peripheral vision was maybe 15, 20 meters. So I thought they were staring at me, but they were only looking short. And I screamed, but my tongue was so swollen, so sore. And with the wind and the rain, I just couldn't get my voice heard above it. And ironically, they're sitting looking at the piece of polystyrene that you would have given anything, anything. to have to hang oh, on to. Because anything. that's the one remarkable thing. I mean, every time we interview someone who's done a sea crossing of one sort or another, they all comment on the fact that you see pollution at sea, plastic passes you buy. You had yeah. nothing to hold on to. Which is so funny because that became my goal. You know, uh, and, and when I do my, my, my inspirational talks, I have this picture of an island that is just, there's always flip-flops. There's always plastic packets. We'd seen a fridge. <laughs> two years previously. And in my mind, I set such an important goal. I was going to bump into a fridge 
It was going to be full of bintang beer. I was going to climb in it. I was so positive about this. And I'd be sipping very cold bintang by the time my boat came back to pick me up. Oh. And I never saw one iota. Nothing. Not a leaf. The day afterwards, we found a 15-foot coconut tree floating just off backline, which I let could go my that. surfboard, climbed on it, and I sat there. And I think I could still be out there fishing like Robinson Cruiser <laughs> if I'd found that tree. Oh, unbelievable. Now, let's talk about the night because at some point you realized the sun's going down, what little sun there is. I, I'm going to be out here all night and it's getting very, very dark and you can no longer see what is underneath you, around you in the water. Yeah. What was that like? Do you know, I must be honest, I was petrified of, of another night. I'd fallen over at 2.30 a.m. So the light came, not bright daylight, but light came within a very short space of time. My brain trying to get around the thought of having to go through a whole night. Fortunately, the sun goes down late, so it only gets dark late. But because of the storm and the wind and the, and the clouds, I had a brief glimpse of the sun through the clouds just as it was setting. Mm. So I kind of figured at a time and I thought, it's setting in the right place. I'm traveling. I had my little piece of paper there and I knew I was going to find land before it got dark. And it was so weird how the night, the day morphed into night. I didn't even realize. I was swimming. I was pulling my arms. I was cramping. I was being ill. And suddenly it was pitch black. And have you seen that movie Life of Pi? Yes. I hadn't seen the movie at the time. But there's a scene in it with jellyfish all around him. Yes. And the sea is so beautiful. I remember sculling with my hands and the phosphorescence in the water bubbling. And I started calling them fairies and naming them. And that kept my, kept my brain so occupied. But I knew without a shadow of doubt I couldn't swim right through the night. Mm. And I gave up. And And... Just so many things happen. I saw this crazy boat. I saw kids in a boat. Uh, Tim Noakes believes in, in the time I spent with him, he said that he, my brain had started hallucinating through the lack of water and the, the breaking down of my body and, and the energy or whatever in your brain, the dehydration. Mm. You start hallucinating like guys are crossing deserts. They start seeing all these beautiful buildings and cars yeah. and th- they're not there. But interestingly, each one of the hallucinations that I saw played a massive role, me reaching out for a boat. So I think I was asleep. I had this hallucination in my head. I reached out to grab the boat. The spl- splashing made me cough, splutter, and I woke up. And I was like, oh, my God, going. where's that boat? And it wasn't there. But you were awake to keep going. I was awake to yeah. keep going. And then I'd start swimming again. And then I'd drift off and... I did crazy things, as you read. I mean, I formed a company in my head. I talked to ladies. Lo- I've just got to say that. It's one of my favorite things in the book. This man appointed himself director of a company and named his body parts, different parts of uh, different board members, and held board meetings, essentially, through the night, checking in, status updates, marketing. Are you still there? Uh, and, and amazing, the, the little mental games you played with yourself, effectively, to keep your focus off what was actually happening to you and, and what the possibility that you were going to die. Yeah. Yeah, I, it was so weird. I was having the craziest. I was saying marketing. Okay, Hillary, what are we? What are we going to do? You're going to sing. So I started singing songs. And then sales. You're going to count. And it was counting and singing in the same time in different compartments in my brain, and even reflecting at, at moments where that is so weird. Look, you can do sing and you can count at the same time, and just mind games. But it just Keep happened with going. my little phosphorus and the fairies and Bob and boss. I'm good. Legs are strong. Lungs are strong. Keep your head above. <laughs> I can go. And I still hear those voices. It's quite weird. Do you still call your nose Bob? <laughs> no, it's, my, mouth was, mouth, Bob. Bob. my okay. mouth was Bob. What is so funny, and, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but the moment I was discovered missing, the skipper of our boat went to had to go and register it at the Port Authority in mm. Tourpajet. Now, he had to register my name, but we had only got on board that night. He had only got first name. So I was registered as Brett Overboard, acronym oh, my Bob. Word. 
the synchronicities and the coincidences in this whole story are incredible. So all boats radioing, any sign of Bob, any I was called Bob. One of my nicknames now is Bob besides Floater and Archie Boy, <laughs> B-U-O-Y. Those are my names in, in, in today's world. Now, the one person we haven't mentioned here that we absolutely have to speak about is Captain Doris, Tony Alderington, who's the man Tony who finally Alderington. found you. Yep. And found you looking in a place where nobody else was looking, that this guy, an old sea dog, essentially looked at a chart, looked at the currents and went, I don't think you're looking in the right place. I'm going to look over there. And he went looking over there with another boatload of nine mates celebrating a 50th Correct. birthday. I mean, the synchronicities, as you say, are astounding. And he is the one who found you. And I mean, there's an SMS here um, from Rosie who said, I've read your book. Uh, I drive over Sekabosi every morning to take my daughter to school. And every time I see that vast ocean as you come over the ridge, I am in awe of how Brett was found. A tiny head bobbing in so much water. It's absolutely hectic. I mean, hectic doesn't even begin to describe it. He took his boat to precisely the right place where you said you would be. And there you were. His little guy was registering their boat to set sail that night to go back to to Padang. To their tour was over, and when you arrive in a, a national maritime law, when you arrive in a port, you check in and you check out when you're setting sail. So he his guy was registering. Our skipper got there, said, "There's this white man over overboard." He ran to the boat, said, "Tony, Tony, Tony, Doris, Puck Doris, they call him." There's a man overboard, and he just went, "Oh my God, what are they doing?" And tried to radio my boat, couldn't get hold of them. Ran into the harbour master, said, get the, in, the Indonesian Navy, everything, found out what he could about me, went to his boat and said, guys, I'm going to find the Safa who's coming. Hmm. And four of them put their hands up and they jumped in a little tinny boat and went out in that hectic, hectic, it's called a tender boat, like the little one we towed behind us, but it had two really big engines. And he plowed into that where I should have been because the current always travels north to south in the Mentawi Strait. And for some reason with this crazy storm, the current at Turner was now going south to north. So he was out there probably from midday until 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they were called in, the Port Authority, when you are putting your boat under uh, a duress in search and rescue or your crew, you have to come in. The Port Authority called them all back in. Our boat was already heading, so they continued to Padang. He came in and his crew said he just paced up and, up and down saying, I should have found him, I should have found him, I should have found him. But interestingly, as he was coming in, he, he just, they needed to stop for a, a relief break. Mm. And they'd been drinking water and out there. They stopped, boat heaving and pitching. He looked down and he saw two coconuts going the wrong way. And despite the wind and everything, his brain went, the coconuts are going the wrong way. The current, the current is, is not coming where it's switched. And he got on board that night and he was talking to the guys and he just said, I, tomorrow morning I'm going north. And the guy said, even his very good friend said, Doris, the, the current comes south to, uh, north to south. He said, I'm going north. And he called it. And he literally said, the next morning he set sail and literally sailed straight up. Straight into you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was looking at the the video footage uh, earlier of uh, somebody shooting as you were literally brought into sea. Yeah. Uh, the two guys dive off the boat, swim to you with that ring, haul you in. Anybody else would expect you to be broken, completely drained, incapable of climbing up the ladder, incapable of speech. There you are in the water shouting, hello, guys, God yeah. bless you. You're waving. Yeah. You climb up the ladder yourself. How did you? I, I mean, said, Aussie, 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 I love you guys. I'm moving <laughs> to Australia tomorrow. It's absolutely <coughs> phenomenal that you, you were that coherent when you find, I mean, 28 and a half hours in the sea, you'd lost six kilograms in weight yep. from what your body had been through. 
and you were utterly coherent and it looked to me like you were trying immediately to talk about what you'd been through you wanted to tell everybody I right did. away I what just wanted to and interestingly after that I mean I just told them everything from I could remember from falling overboard to them rescuing me and then they they looked at the tended to all my vital organs, put me to sleep, and I, interestingly, I couldn't sleep. I hadn't mm-hmm. slept in something like 80-something hours by that stage. I asked for a little notebook, and I started writing. And that actually is the basis of this book. Of this I book just started alone. writing of every single thing I could remember while I was in the water because it was the weirdest thing. All those brain thoughts, processes, structures that I put in place uh, were, were the, the kind of string that kept me going, you know. And, and if you look back, it's the weirdest thing, but it just mm. kept my brain active and not thinking about it, despite the fact, I mean, physically, I remember my fingers clawing like claw, like balls. And I was thinking, please don't do this because I can't swim, skull. I can't keep my head above water because I don't have the flat palm. And pulling my fingers, and the skin on my s- fingers was so loose, it would just come off. And I was thinking, no, no, just get your fingers flat. But my brain didn't stay focused on the pain or the cramping. It went to other things, process, structure, talk. Now, the one thing I'll never forget is is hearing your wife speak a few days afterwards when you knew you were okay. You hadn't come home. You stayed on to finish the surfing trip. But I remember hearing Anita speaking on Cape Talk about the anguish that she'd been through. Um, How has this experience changed your lives and your life individually as well as your life and your family? Well, you know, it was quite interesting. We had a, a dinner last night uh, for for a banking organisation, and it was Anita and I. And the ladies like to ask. It's lovely to hear it from. I also like to hear. I mean, it was hectic. She got the the news from the wife of one of my mates on board who didn't want to go and tell her. It was a day like yesterday in Cape Town. Mm. She got the news, but she was so incredible. Interestingly. Uh, Kino phoned her, Kino Cummings yes. phoned her. Um, she was spoken to by a number of people. She has absolutely no recollection. But if you listen to those podcasts, she was unbelievable. She was I completely, mean, yes, calm un- and in control. Calm, yeah. in control. I know he's alive. We have an incredible telepathy, the, the two of us. I, it's, it'll be like I'll be driving along and think, oh, I need to tell Anita that. My phone will ring and she'll say, oh, did you remind or remember to do that? We just have that amazing relationship. Uh, there's no doubt our lives turned upside down 180 degrees I mean I phoned her and said I'm not coming home I'm staying on to surf and she actually let me do that she didn't blink she said if that's I just want to know where you are and what you're doing 24-7 keep me posted and go for it and I, I like in the book you know the things that are important in our lives now are our faith our family and our friends and I find when those three are all in sync and it's very hard to get them all in sync when they are our lives are good. And all the other stuff we used to worry about is just irrelevant. Last question before I let you go. Have you been back again since then? I haven't. I'm due to fly next Friday, but I'm actually not going. I had to pull out of it. It's a dad and son trip that the guys have put together. And sadly for me, my little guy's only 10 now, just mm. too young to take on that tour. So I will be going. I'd really like, Doris has got a new boat. So I've been in, <laughs> in uh, um, correspondence with him and he's invited me to go and take a crew. So sometime in this year, or very early next year, I will be on the Nagalau 3, which Doris manages. Sure. How about a satellite crossing to us back at Cape Talk uh, when you I'll definitely do that. But yeah. I do know my mates will handcuff me to the St. Paul <laughs> and I'll be able to run around like a chain dog. But other than that, I won't be allowed near the rails. Keep that life ring looped over your arm, Brett. The book is called Alone, The Search for Brett Archibald. Is it in all the major bookstores, Brett? All How major bookstores. All, all major bookstores. Exclusive books. Discam. Online. Take a lot. 
It's out there, get it. Not because it's my book, it's a great, it's a great, great story. read. Just make sure you've got a free weekend because you're not going to put it down. So nice to finally have you with us in studio. It won't be the last time, I'm sure. Brett Archibald, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Pippa.